Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We are so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103, and we're also going to be in Romans 8. Psalm 103 and Romans 8. And I want to answer a gigantic question for you this weekend. I mean, it might be one of the bigger questions that we all have to answer. And this is the question. Is God mad at me? Now this has been, this question is very important because the way we understand God will determine a lot of things in our lives. I mean, quite honestly, the way you answer this question will determine the way you worship. It'll determine how you pray, the posture you take when you pray. Let me tell you something really important though. The way you answer that question will determine how you respond to people around you. It'll determine how you have interactions with people. Because if God's mad at you, then you probably should be mad at everyone else, right? But if God's not mad at us, if God has forgiven us, then it's quite possible that we should probably forgive other people, right? So when I was growing up, I grew up in real Pentecostal, charismatic churches where anything that that was fun was a sin, right? That's the kind of the church. You might grow up in those churches like that. Okay, four of you. We're all shaky, but we're still recovering. We're doing great. You know, I grew up in a church. My pastor preached against sex because it might lead to dancing. That was, uh, it was, I mean, just anything. <laughs> that was joking. That's a joke. We'll probably edit that out for, uh, but that, that's the kind of the essence of the church I grew up in, right? It was, it was just, I always thought that God was mad at me. I always had this prevailing feeling that if I did something wrong that the mighty hand of God would fall down on me. And then when I became a young man, I was 20, 21 years old, I started dating my wife and I realized I was about to get married and and I could not treat her the way I thought God was treating me. I knew this was a, a recipe for a train wreck of a marriage. So I went, the Lord took me early in my walk with God to Psalm 103. And I want to read Psalm 103 to you. We're going to start in verse 8. We're actually going to end up reading most of the psalm, but we're going to start in verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Can we stop just for a moment? The gospel is only good news if we first admit that we are sinners. It's not good news to you if you don't think you're a sinner. But if you know you have sinned, if you know all the sinners in the room, would you please raise your hand? I just know there's one other. All right, thank God. I'm, in a, I'm with human beings today. Listen, you know why the gospel is such good news to us who know that we're sinners? It's because the gospel gives us grace, something we don't deserve. And Psalm 103 tells us that he does not repay us as our sins deserve. Do you believe? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that your sins deserve punishment? The answer is yes, by the way. This is not a trick question. Yes, all right, all the sinners. I thought we were sinners. Come on, you should know this stuff, all right? All sinners should know that. So our sins deserve punishment. He said he doesn't repay us according to our sins, or or even as our iniquities deserve. Look at the next verse, verse 11. Put it back up there, verse 11. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. 
It's as high as the heavens are above the earth. So I want you to see the uh, vertical language and the horizontal language. Vertical and horizontal. Okay, vertical, is that right? Okay, vertical up and down. Horizontal. I want you to notice the hyperbole, the, the, the language here that the writer uses. It's as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Then he says, as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then look at verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children. Now, to stop just for a moment, this is so important for you to catch. All the dads in the room, can you remember the first time you held your baby, that your child? Any, any all the dads, raise your hand. Let me see all the dads, right? Okay, the first time, uh, when we meet other people's children for the first time, we are polite. Even though they all look like Winston Churchill, right? We all know that. Okay, that's a Seinfeld joke, right? Just, you can Google that. All right, so but that's a joke. Your children are beautiful, and I think they are beautiful, okay? I think they're gorgeous. But there's something different about holding your own child. Now, why is it that that's true? It's a bit of a selfish reason. You know why we think our children are better looking than everyone else's? Because our DNA is in them. And we just have this heightened opinion of ourselves, right? Our children are more beautiful than everyone else because our DNA is in that child. And when you hold that child that belongs to you, you just feel differently than holding any other child. Now God, the writer of this psalm says, God is like a father that has compassion on his children. This is how you get over the fact, if you think God's mad at you all the time, you know this, that most of you probably had dads, especially all the girls in the room, you can get away with stuff with your dad, right? My 17-year-old daughter literally can ask me for anything, and if it does not lead to bankruptcy, she pretty much gets it, right? I mean, she just got me wrapped around her finger. She's 17 years old. She's got red hair and blue eyes. She looks like me. She acts like her mom. She is just perfect, perfect. <laughs> She's 17 years old, and she's perfect. And so she, I see that in her. And she's an adopted girl, but I, my DNA is as much in her. And this is, like, go, go, let's finish this up. Look at this last part. He says, verse 14, for he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Now, I want you to keep that up, just keep that up just for a moment, because I want you to see this is very important. I want you to remember all the moms and dads in the rooms when your kids were like four and five years old. And one of the best moments, one of the, one of the riskiest moments of parenthood is when your children graduate from sippy cup to adult cup. Remember that? This is a big moment, okay? If you haven't experienced this, yeah, this is a big time. Getting out of diapers, feeding themselves. But then there, there comes this moment where at breakfast on a Saturday morning, you've gotten up. You cook this big meal, this breakfast, and you give them for the very first time an adult cup of milk. Let me tell you, every parent in the room knows what happens next, right? The grand experiment fails. And right in the middle of the meal, they knock the cup over. And did you know that one cup of milk can cover half a square mile? Did you know this? <laughs> it's, a, it's a scientific fact. One cup of milk. Because I'm finding it for like two weeks later, I'm still finding milk. And it spoils everything on the table. And the first response from parents is what? What are you thinking? Ah! Right? You just get this burst of anger comes out of you. And then you look up and you look at their little face and they're five years old. They're four. 
and they look like you. And then you remember that they're perfect. And they're looking at you like, what happened to my dad? He became a monster over a glass of spilled milk. But the reason that we get over that, a good parent at least, gets over that really quickly, is because you remember they're four. They're just kids. This is the language. The Hebrew text is God looking at us saying, I know you're going to spill the milk. I know you're going to mess this up. I know it. You're just dust. I remember now why I love you. Even though you spill the milk, even though you've made a mess of things, my DNA is imprinted on you. You look like me. I formed you. Psalm 139 says he knit us together in the wombs of our mother. This is how involved God has been with us from day one. He knit us together in the womb of our mother. All right, this passage of scripture that I just read to you out of Psalm 103 is literally lifted right out of Exodus 34. Do you know this? You know this story? All the church people know this story. All right, Exodus 34 is Moses on the top of of Mount Sinai, the holy mountain. And Moses is walking up for the second time with a blank piece of rock. And people in Arizona know what this looks like, a big slab of granite, a big slab of rock for the second time. Because you know what happened in Exodus 32? The first time he had a rock... God wrote the law, like the Ten Commandments. Charleston Heston was there. He can tell you this, all right? He was there. Ask him. They were on Mount Sinai. God writes stuff on a rock and hands it to Moses. It's a true story. You should buy a Bible. It's really good stories, all right? Verse 30, okay, chapter 32, Moses has this blank tablets of rock. And he, God, have I said this before? God wrote on it. You know how valuable that is? God wrote on rock. Moses has them in his hands like this. And he walks down the mountain. And when he gets down the mountain, in, read Exodus 32. The people are sinning. They have just gone nuts. I mean, it's like you're leaving your kids alone for the first time. And they just tear the house up. They're just wrecking the place. It's just sin and depravity. And Moses sees the people sinning. And gets angry and throws the tablets down and breaks them. Breaks the tablets that God wrote on. Spills the milk. Verse 34, God asked him to come back and bring some more rock this time. Bring another tablet of rock. Moses is walking back up the mountain after really blowing it the first time. Walks back up the mountain with these tablets of rock in his hand. And you know what he expects? He expects the angry God to go, pow! Before God ever writes on the rock. Now here's Moses with his head down, wondering if God is mad at him. And he says, before he ever, God ever writes something on the rock, he says, I love you as far as the east is from the west. As far as high as the heavens are above the earth, as a father has compassion on his children, Moses, I love you. Now let me write this again for you and get this right this time. And then Psalm 103 repeats that story as a reminder throughout Scripture that the grand narrative of the Bible is actually a God trying to redeem an unholy 
and unforgiving and unrighteous people. And you know what the grand narrative of the human story is today? God trying to redeem an unholy, unrepentant group of sinners and make them his own so he can call them sons and daughters. This whole narrative that we're living in, the story that you're living in right now, is a story of God sending his Holy Spirit to a group of people and trying to call them to himself, form them into a community called the church so they can go out and be a witness to the rest of the world who needs to belong to the family that we've been adopted into. That's the Bible right there. I just gave it to you in 30 seconds. That's the narrative of the scriptures as God describes them. Let me show you where it repeats itself. Now go to Romans chapter 8, okay? Romans chapter 8. If I were on a, uh, stranded on an island somewhere and I had to pick a chapter of the Bible, it would be hard for me not to pick Romans chapter 8. And it's just really for three or four verses. I mean, but I love the whole chapter. But look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. All the church people know Romans chapter 8, verse 1, right? It says, therefore there, therefore, there is now no condemnation. None. You know what the, the, the Greek there is? Nada. Zilch. Nice to joke, right? But that's what it means. None. Are you, can y'all laugh? Does Pastor Preston let y'all laugh at church? Okay, I'm just sorry. Well, you know, Pastor Preston's funnier than you, Pastor Brady. I get that, all right? But help me out a little bit. Right, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. Now, I'm going to explain this in just a moment. That's really good news, by the way. That's really fascinating news. That's the best news that human, humanity's ever been told. Do you know that? It's the best news people have ever been told. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. Condemnation, here, here's, write this definition down. This will really help you. Condemnation means to have a judgment against you. To to be put on trial. It's actually to be waiting for the sentencing. In other words, you are waiting for the judge to give you a sentence for a crime that you've committed. You're not innocent. You're guilty. I was with a, uh, a, a man who, uh, a few years ago, he was telling me a story. And he said, Brady, I was 19 years old. I was, uh, it was a Saturday night. I was playing a pickup basketball game with a group of guys in a park. And they all said, hey, let's get in the car. They ran out of beer. Now, at 19, you can play basketball and drink beer, apparently, in the heat of the day. So they ran out of beer, and they, they get in a car. On the way to the liquor store, the two guys in the front seat leaned over and said, hey, we're going to rob this place. This is a kid that's never been in trouble. This is a kid that was just playing basketball with his friends. And literally halfway to the liquor store, the guy goes, we're going to rob this place. It'll be a lot of fun. They get out of the car and hand him a gun. He's 19. He takes the gun. He says, and they tell him, don't shoot him, just scare him. If the guy gives us any problem, just shoot up in the air and scare him. We're going to grab the money and run out of here. Well, my, the 19-year-old guy that I'm talking to, I know him. I know this guy very well. He's telling me this story. Goes, they go into the liquor store, and the guy behind the counter actually reaches behind the counter and grabs a gun of his own. And it scares the three boys that are there to rob and my friend points it at him and shoots him, shoots him right through the chest, kills him instantly. Here's a 19-year-old kid that's never been in trouble, headed to college on a basketball scholarship, shoots a guy in the chest, kills him. And he, he knew about the robbery five minutes before they walked in. Just stupid, right? That's just foolishness. He said, Brady, I'm waiting in the courtroom. 
And he says, I did it. And I'm devastated. My whole life is ruined. Obviously, the man's life is ruined too. He's dead. And he, he said, I can't feel any worse as a human being that I'm feeling right now. And I'm waiting for the judge to tell me the sentence. He says, Brady, that's the worst feeling in the world when you know that you are guilty. That is the definition of condemnation. That story, don't ever forget that story. That's what it feels like to be condemned. Waiting for the sentence to be carried out for something that you did. Now, this, I'm going to tell you the end of that story real quick. So the guy goes to uh, prison for 30 years. Served 30 years of a life sentence. Became the cook for the Mississippi governor's office. Became the personal chef of the Mississippi governor. Turned, he gave his life to the Lord. 30 years he lived for God in prison. And on the governor's last week in office, he gave my, that guy a full pardon. 30, he served 30 years, got out, and now he tells his story everywhere. He knows what it feels like to be condemned, and he knows what it feels like to be pardoned. He says he is the guy. More, he says, I know about the gospel better than anybody else because I know what it, Romans chapter 8 says. I know what that feels like, and I deserved it. He said, I deserve to stay in prison for the rest of my life. I should stay in the prison for the rest of my life. I got pardoned after 30 years. This guy tells his story everywhere. There is no condemnation. It's amazing, isn't it? Because we're all that guy. We're all guilty. I just asked you, I set you up for this, by the way, because I asked you in the room how many sinners are in the room. If you have ever sinned, you know this feeling. You've, you're guilty. And yet somewhere along the way, you figure out that Christ has paid for all those sins. All right, look how this chapter ends, okay? This is amazing. Verse 38. He says, so remember, this, the chapter starts with no condemnation. All right, now look at verse 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, see the, the vertical, horizontal, he says, or anything else in all creation, in case I have forgotten something, in other words, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to notice that the chapter starts with no condemnation. And Romans chapter 8 ends with no separation. Now I want you to remember what I'm about to tell you. This one thing I want you to remember. No condemnation is the glory of the gospel. And no separation is the guarantee of the gospel. And this is why Psalm 103 and Romans chapter 8 de de definitively, absolutely answers the question once and for all, is God mad at you? The answer is no. He's already made up his mind to forgive you. He's already chosen and gone to extravagant lengths to prove that he will go to whatever lengths possible to call you home. God has made up his mind to love you. God is not mad at you. God wants to welcome you home. I don't know how many of you have been welcomed home lately, but maybe you're here for the first time this weekend, and I have really good news for you. God wants to welcome you home. Let me ask you a question. If everything I've said is true tonight, and it is, I believe it, I absolutely believe it's true. I believe that if we can grasp just these two things, these two big ideas, 
that, that no separation and no condemnation, if we can just grasp these two things, it will heal most of the hurts and the fears and the doubts that plague most believers. If, if you can believe that God's not mad at you, a lot of the insecurities, a lot of the fears, a lot of the worries, a lot of the doubts can be healed if you will believe these simple things that I've given. This is how important it is to believe that God's not mad at you. It will heal you of almost everything that's bothering you. Now, I've been pastoring. Next year will be my 25th year of pastoral ministry. Next, next year in 2019 will be 25 years of pastoral ministry. And I can tell you thousands of times that I've sat in front of people and I've listened to the most horrendous stories you've ever heard in your life, including the one I just told you. That's one of the worst stories I've ever heard in my life. His life was wrecked. His family's life was wrecked. The man who died, his life was ended. I mean, it's an awful story. And he was wrestling through some guilt when he told me this story. He's wrestling through. And I can tell you marriage stories and, and people who have lost loved ones and children. And, and I can just tell you awful stories. And it always comes down to this one question at the end of the meeting. Do you believe God is for you and not against you? And if you believe that God is for you and not against you, do you believe that God loves you and is not mad at you? If you can believe those things, you can overcome just about anything that's going on in your life. Did you know that? This is how important this truth is. This is how critical it is to evaluate this question. Again, and some of you have been following the Lord for a really, really long time, but I'm asking you the same question. Do you think that God's gotten tired of you? Are you kind to people? How often do you share the good news with people? The reason people, you know why people win people to the Lord? is because they have been redeemed, they have been set free, and they just want to tell as many people as possible. I think we get bored with our faith, we get complacent with our faith, because we have forgotten how much we have been forgiven. If all of this is true, what should it cause us to do? Let me show you this. Go back now to Psalm 103. Go back to Psalm 103. We're going to read the first five verses now. All right, this is what he says. Now, the writer of the psalm, we, it's a son, it was written by the sons of Korah, so we don't really know who exactly who wrote Psalm 103, but listen to this, okay? Praise the Lord, O my soul. All right, some of you, in some of your translations, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Anybody remember the Andre Crouch song, the old Andre Crouch song, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, for he has done great things. From, all right, this is where he got the song, okay, from these first five verses. Bless the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, with, with my inmost being, praise, bless his holy name, Praise the Lord, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives you all your disease, or who, it says, who, who forgives you all your sins and heals all your diseases. Isn't that amazing? If that is true, what should we say then? He says, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What? Have you read that before? What does that have to do with anything? I mean, do y'all read the Bible like human beings? I mean, look at verse 5. I love the first four verses. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless the Lord, who heals all my diseases, forgives all my sins, and you'll be young again like an eagle. What? Let me tell you what that means. You know what happens in a life of an eagle? 
You know what happens in the life of an eagle? That over the course of their life, they shed all their feathers. Do you know that? They molt like most birds. But an eagle, at least one time in their adult life, sheds all of their, their youthful foliage. I mean, they just get rid of all of it. And for about a two or three week period, depending on the bird, they cannot fly and they cannot feed themselves and they cannot go to water. They are completely vulnerable to predators. As an adult eagle, think about the great, the great, great bird of prey that we have as our national symbol. The eagle, the fierce eagle, finds himself completely vulnerable because they have gotten rid of all of their old feathers and they're waiting on the new growth of feathers to come. And they're vulnerable for two or three weeks sometimes. And some of them don't survive. But if they do survive, they fly faster and live longer because they have suddenly gotten new wings and sprouted new abilities to fly. They're faster and stronger than they've ever been in their life if they can just get rid of the old stuff and take on the new stuff. They are better than they've ever been before. And the writer of this psalm knew about birds. And he says, who heals all your diseases and forgives all your sins so that your youth can be renewed like the eagles. And some of you this, this weekend need to get rid of some old things. And you're hanging on to some old things. And you, you, the God has come this weekend by the, by the help of the Holy Spirit. God just says, get rid of some of the old things. The old way of believing, the old way of living, and trust God for grace. Trust God for this new thing. God wants to give you something new so you can live differently and live better. You are holding on to old habits, old attitudes, and God has said if you, you're gonna be, you're gonna, it's going to feel very vulnerable. You know, repentance is the most vulnerable thing that can happen in a believer's life. I want you to think about how vulnerable it is to say, God, I am a sinner. I just asked you a moment ago, you are really good about it. Father in heaven, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I cannot save myself. I can't do this on my own. And we come like children with our hands open because you can't earn grace. You can't do enough good works. And when that, when you, when that dawns on you that you can't save yourself, that's the first big step toward salvation. I can't save myself. I can't do this without God. I'm getting rid of these old feathers. And you stand there before God really vulnerable very vulnerable and God comes and puts his arms around you and something new begins to happen some new growth begins to happen new feathers begin to appear and something happens in every person's life when they choose to believe that God is not mad at them but instead God is welcoming them home and so I want you to stand with me this weekend and we are going to I want to sing I asked our worship team here if they could sing that chorus with me I kind of sprung it on at the end but how many of you know the song the Andre Crouch song all right I just think we should sing that for a minute, all right? Can we just, if this is true, let me ask you a question this weekend. Do you believe this is true? Do you believe that God's mad at you? Do you believe that he is for you and not against you? Do you believe that he's chosen to adopt you and call you sons and daughters? Do you think he's already made up his mind to forgive us? If that is true, the writer of Psalm 103 says, well, then bless the Lord. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.